Um, on behalf of my family, I yeah, thank you. Uh, we have enjoyed our time here. Uh, we were already members and already loving our time, but now we can kind of come on staff through the residency. And you are pretty kind people. I appreciate that. You've loved on us. You've cared for us. Uh, you prayed for us. Uh, you're investing into us. Um, boy, is that humbling and encouraging. So thank you for that. I know that uh, if my family were to stand in front of uh, you guys, which they never would because they would be terrified. But nonetheless, uh, we <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, we've had a great experience. Um, so preaching Proverbs brings a couple of difficulties. One that's been mentioned multiple times as Chuck and Tad and myself uh, stand here is that it can become overly moralistic, uh, which makes it seem like the aim of life is behavioral modification, and we lose sight of what's really wrong with us. But gratefully, Proverbs doesn't lose sight of that. It reminds us that typically there's a heart issue, right? Uh, that really out of the overflow of our heart, our speech, our actions. Uh, and so really, we got to get to the heart, which uh, brilliantly enough, it allows for us to do that. And if you notice, each and every week we come back to how do we deal with our heart. And yes, we'll do it once again today. Um, the, second, the second difficulty is since you're dealing with wisdom and your actions and the way you live, people can get mad at you. Uh, you know, he's like, yeah, hey, you're stepping on my toes, man. Come on. Um, so... That may happen today, but you're not mad at me, you're mad at the Bible, all right? I just want to be clear here, because uh, yet it could be another day as we talk about self-control, the way we handle ourselves, our desires, um, and maybe can, can dig a little bit, but we're grateful for that, right? Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but Proverbs has only been a reflection of godly character, right? Uh, of how we live and how we present ourselves in the world, and we're going to do just that one more time. But we acknowledge that difficulty, but we still want to run to it. Because in living out God's character, being wise people, we think the gospel is on display. Uh, because the only way we could truly live out what Proverbs calls us to is by the gospel changing our hearts. And so just kind of a word of caution and kind of frame even today and the rest of our time together. Um, but self-control, right? Uh, that's a fun topic. Uh, I read an article once about a guy whose muscles turned to rock. Bizarro. No kidding. They really turned to rock, and he almost had to have both of his arms amputated as a result. This seems tragic, and rightly so, because who wants their arms cut off? Um, until you hear how they slowly turned to rock. This guy had an obsession of becoming the Incredible Hulk. That he willingly injected into his arms this enhancement oil called synthanol. I don't know anything about it, but pockets of this oil began to turn to rock. His muscles. So as the process of rocks began developing his arms, uh, in his arms, rather than quitting, which kind of seems like the logical conclusion, here's what he did. He got smaller needles to avoid the existing rocks in his muscles in order to continue the injections. Um, absurd, I know. And you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with this morning? Well, just stick with me. These types of stories, I don't know if you're anything like me, they really stick with me. And usually, the more absurd they are, the longer I typically think about them. It's often because I just can't stop wondering, what was this person thinking? I mean, the right conclusion is simply, just stop, right? Work out maybe a little harder, but he doesn't. Why does someone willingly subject themselves to harmful behaviors? I mean, really, why is it that he continued to do it? Now, I understand that's quite the loaded question, isn't it? And the answer is probably multifaceted. There's probably multiple reasons. But really, what is at the root of a story like this? 
I mean, is a desire to become the Incredible Hulk a worthy enough desire to endanger your life? Eh, probably not. Uh, is there any desire that we have that we're allowed to just take control and call the shots for us? Or should we eliminate all of our desires and therefore free us from making really dumb decisions? Well, actually, some religions think so. Buddhism actually states that suffering is created because there's a gap between what we want, our desires, and the way things really are. So in essence, our desires kind of create the problem. So their eight-step process is to rid oneself of desires, and therefore, if you have no desires, you don't have any suffering, at least according to that line of thinking. But it doesn't take much to understand that that philosophy is a bit inadequate to truly deal with something inherent to being a human, our desires. We are a, a bundle of desires, and we can hardly rid ourselves completely of all of our desires. It's kind of deeply flawed to think that there's no desire that's worthy of our attention. I mean, a desire to have no desires is a desire, <laughs> but yet maybe a, a yeah, I don't know. But the scriptures, particularly Proverbs, speaks very differently about these desires that we have. They kind of offer a better way of thinking about our desires, and they offer some warning along the way. In Newsflash, its answer, which you probably don't want to hear and you don't want to think about, is self-control. Which, let me just ground this a little bit to say, oh, yeah, whatever. Well, think about this. That answer is based upon, as we've been learning, a radical Lord-centered view of the world, right? Remember Proverbs 9, 10 that said, fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. So self-control shouldn't just be landing on us saying, oh, okay, there's the answer. No, what I want you to hear, wisdom driven by a right understanding of the Lord a fear and awe, a reverence for the Lord. It tells us to practice self-control. So maybe that should cause us to step back and think for a moment of why is that. So we're going to kind of tackle this beast, much like Proverbs handles it, by asking the question, well, why? Why self-control? What's the big deal? And then maybe discuss a few areas to consider in regards to self-control. And lastly, how do we cultivate that? How do we become men and women of self-control? Because I am a bundle of desires, and some burn hot than others, and how do I control those? But first, put a bookmark at Galatians 5. If you have a phone, maybe you don't have to put a bookmark in, but... But I don't know. Put a bookmark at Galatians 5. We're going to end there. Much on that later. I'll, I'll wait for you because it's so important. I want you to be ready for this when we get there because it's good. So Galatians 5. Put a mark there. We're going to come to that in a moment. Uh, we're going to read a large chunk of that. But I think it's worthy of our time to do that together today. So... The question is, how should we view our desires? We can agree that we have desires, and we can kind of agree together that maybe the answer is not to get rid of them. So what should we do with our desires? Well, Proverbs 25, 28 gives us a really generic and uh, kind of big understanding of self-control. So here's what it says. 
A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So one of the things you probably have picked up on is Proverbs is chock full of imagery. I actually prefer that. I like that. So what does this imagery mean? Because literally, when you look at the text, it literally, in this order, it says, a city broken, no walls, a man without restraint of spirit. That literally is how the scripture is, is written out. Now, we in English bring out those nuances of there's comparison going on, isn't there? But really, it just says, it starts with broken city, no walls, a man who has no restraint of spirit. So what do these images mean? And what are they supposed to communicate? Well, let's start with a city that's broken. The biblical use of a city was oftentimes used for moral and spiritual lessons, which we kind of see here. You see, a city has profound technological and social accomplishments, right? A city can function really well to bring about these beautiful and wonderful advancements in technology. It also is a fortified place to live. But this city is broken, unable to function. A city is a prosperous place, a gathering for education, fun, strength. But this one is broke. And interestingly enough, the way the text is laid out, it's actually indicating that another entity has crept in and destroyed it. So it has become corrupted and now it's broke. All right, well, what about walls? Well, the beauty of a city in ancient times was its wall because its ability to protect its inhabitants was based upon the wall. So massive and strong were these ancient city walls that they're often the most prominent remains found in archaeology. When they dig, they usually find remains of the walls because they were so massive and huge. And in fact, a person from biblical times would find a city without a wall. They would see that as an absolute absurdity. You see, a wall around a city was such a common element to the success of the city, it was unthinkable not to have one. This is because if a city has no wall, it is susceptible to danger. Once the wall breaks, fear sets in. A city was incomplete without one. Because from the wall, people could see danger. If danger got close, they could hurl projectiles at the enemy, right? It was their defense. Interestingly enough, too, Proverbs has made use of this inner imagery many times. Here's two ways. When wisdom makes her, her pronouncements, you know where she does that from? The entrance of the city gates, Proverbs 121, the wall. And, and she made it from the highest place in town, which is where? The wall. Perhaps indicating the strength of the city was its understanding of wisdom. But you see, this comparison of this broke city with no walls is to a person who lacks restraint. It's basically maybe, perhaps, just for a second, for the moment of argument, maybe it's you and I. Just for the sake of argument. Bear with me for a few moments. But potentially, the comparison could be us sitting in this room this very moment. 
You see, we are susceptible to danger when we lack restraint. Without self-control, we're broke. And we are without walls, so sin enters in unhindered. You see, when the walls go down, opportunistic sins, like those sins that know you really well, right? That know your number, that can have their way with you, well, they find an easy way in because they're unhindered. And they will continue to have their way with us. So that outburst of anger that could have been absorbed by the inner wall of restraint flies out with vengeance, and it destroys our loved one. The thrill of one more look at sexually explicit material could have been avoided by creating barriers. One more sweet meal to calm our anxiety could have been avoided by a few walls. You see, once the walls go down, sin is there. The unbridled person is already defeated. The unbridled person is already defeated. Do you see the need for self-control? Do you see how important restraint is to becoming a wise people who reflect God to the world around us? Tempe needs Christian men and women to live wise so that they can see the effect of the gospel on the hearts of people. And there's no greater declaration that the gospel works that when men and women are self-controlled. Because we live in a chaotic world of instant gratification. Well, if that's not clear, perhaps 29, Proverbs 29, 11, can make it a bit more plain for you. Well, a fool, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. You see, a fool is not highly praised in Proverbs, if you're wondering. He's not what we're aiming for. But yet, here's another a characteristic of this particular fool, a lack of restraint. A lack of self-control. The one whose desires get the best of them. But the wise seem to hold back. They seem to exhibit Restraint. We desperately need to be people who practice restraint. So Proverbs' answer to our desire is this. They cannot go unchecked. I mean, really simply put, it seems like this scripture is screaming that those who lack self-control are susceptible to danger and they'll never thrive. So its answer to us today, driven out of a Lord-centered view, is that our desires cannot go unchecked. Well, what are some areas to consider now that we've made somewhat of a strong case of the necessity of restraint, the necessity of self-control in our life? Well, what are some areas? And some may surprise you, some may not. The first area to potentially consider is fame. 
Well, I found this really struck me as very interesting because attached to verse 28, we actually find verse 27. I went to seminary to figure that out. 27 is attached to 28. But it's, it's even more deeply connected to the fact that they just have numbers of each other. If you lay out the context and if you lay out the structure, 27 is kind of connected to this conclusion of 28, which we just learned. What's the conclusion? It says this. Those who lack self-control are susceptible to danger, and they will never thrive. So it has to bear some weight on them. Where do we exhibit this self-control? So what does it say? Well, Proverbs 25, 27 says this. It is not good to eat much honey. We're going to come back to that imagery in just a few moments. That one is rich in Proverbs and in Psalms. It is. It's good. Um, but it's not good to eat much of it. Well, why? Nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Hmm. I shouldn't eat a lot of honey. I kind of get that. I should exhibit self-control. But nor is it glorious. It's comparing. Nor is it glorious to seek your own glory. Well, perhaps this might be an unusual twist to thinking about restraint, to thinking about self-control. But a further investigation, we see that the entire context of Proverbs 25, verse 1 gives us the context. It says that the king's men, Hezekiah's men in particular, the leaders, they copied, from this point forward, they copied all of these statements. So here's these leaders underneath the king that are constantly copying all the statements in chapter 25. So in light of this, the wisdom giving is to what? Practice self-control in regards to what? Fame. Man was not meant to so exalt themselves that they would forget the Lord. Which, as we have said many times, that what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So man was not designed to put in place put themselves in a place where God can only reside. Because what happens once man or you or me replace God, wisdom is unattainable according to Proverbs. So isn't that a strong warning to say it is not good for you to seek your own glory because if you do, the potential is to replace God with yourself and wisdom out the window. Because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Whatever you replace that with, wisdom is unattainable. And see, and this is an unfortunate reality in our particular society, right? We live in a day and age when an individual can rise in popularity quickly, right? The 15 minutes of fame now has lasted. It can go so quick and you can be famous for many, many years, so quickly. And this leads us to believe that we're something. I had not seen this point clear, clearly as I did years ago when I lived in Florida, and there was a certain professional athlete who played golf. He was exposed about his secret life of sexual activity quite rampantly. But this is what struck me about this particular guy. He was incredibly popular. In an interview, here's what he said. He stated that he knew what he was doing was wrong, but thought the rules did not apply to him. 
So somewhere along the way, he thought that he had risen above the moral standards that everyone else should follow and was allowed to engage in multiple sexual experiences with no consequences. You believe that, yes, that activity was wrong, but it didn't apply to me because wisdom goes out the window when you replace God with you. Because we look at that statement and go, you're absurd, man. <laughs> How can you think something's right for everyone else but not for you? Because wisdom is unattainable when you replace God with you. Well, he soon found out <laughs> lack of self-control will catch up with you. And his career has never been the same, unfortunately. Well, perhaps this word of warning is never more applicable than to us today, right? And we all, have, we all have places where we experience fame. Remember, maybe that rousing presentation at school. Many followers on Facebook. Lots of likes on Instagram. Maybe you're an expert in your field. Maybe you successfully started a thriving business and everyone's coming to you to ask about it. Maybe you're fashionable, you start trends. Maybe you're sought after because you have wise counsel, so everyone comes to you. We experience those small moments of fame, right? And they do something to us, don't they? Perhaps you experience power. Maybe you're a manager at work, you're a boss over many people, you're a parent. I've got power, right? Like, Maybe you're a leader of a ministry here. Maybe you're seeking certain leadership roles here. Or maybe you have control over something really big. But be warned. Do not seek your own glory to the exclusion of God's glory. The moment you replace the rightful place of God, wisdom is unattainable, and you do stupid things. And people around you look at you and go, what were you thinking? The Incredible Hulk is a fictional character. You don't need to become that guy. It's like, oh. But we lack restraint. We like what might come with that. Be warned. We all have places we experience fame. We all have places that make us feel like we're something. Just be warned. Be careful. The king's men, leaders in the court, wrote these things down. You got to know that it's like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good point. Well, we could talk for a while about that, but let's move on. What's another area to consider that will probably make us all mad at each other but food? Oh, as a good Southerner, this is hard, okay? This is really difficult. Um, okay, so Proverbs 25, 16. If you found honey, apparently that's a really good thing, but if you found it, <laughs> eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Don't you love this imagery? It's so good. If you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and vomit it. Well, like I promised, this, this, uh, this imagery of honey is really rich. 
honey was considered a delicacy. And it was always associated with really pleasant experiences. It also was believed to have medicinal qualities. So therefore, it made it very valuable. It was a very expensive gift. So since it was very expensive, it really was a true treat when one was able to have some. So perhaps the tendency was to overindulge. This doesn't happen very often, considering all the above reasons, right? I mean, what's the harm to overindulge on something so tasty and inherently good? Well, a, a, according to Proverbs, it turns to vomit. <laughs> well, this is stark contrast, right, between honey and the vomit. Well, overindulgence ruins the good things. You see, mixed with the vomit is the honey, the original good item. The honey has become ruined by our lack of self-control. We have a way of turning honey to vomit. We have a tendency by the way we live our lives to turn honey to vomit. I love that imagery. That's so helpful to me. You and I have a tendency to turn honey to vomit. Overeating. Too much wine, Proverbs 23, 30 through 35. Check that out. It's there. Overindulgence of sweets. They all need to be guarded against. Before what? They turn unhealthy. So Americans eat roughly a ton, literally a ton in weight of food a year. Included in that total weight are some of these items. 29 pounds of french fries a year which I ate about 10 this weekend because my wife was at a conference and I had to do dinner. Chick-fil-A fries, why not? Um, but 29 pounds of french fries a year. 23 pounds of pizza a year. 24 pounds of ice cream a year, come on. Um, 53 gallons of soda a year, which is what, a gallon a week? Um, 24 pounds of artificial sweeteners. And if I were to be really honest with you, as a good Southerner, I've always wrestled with unhealthy eating habits. My greatest vice in my early 20s was Mountain Dew. And pretty much anything made of sugar. That was, I'd eat it. Baked goods are like crack to me. I, I literally, I can't get enough of it. Uh, give me more, give me more, give me more. I can literally consume large amounts of sweets at one sitting. People binge drink. I like binge eat sweets. That's what I do. Sugar, sugar. I seriously drank hundreds of gallons of Mountain Dew in my 20s and probably Doritos as well. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's been over the last few years that God has convicted me and through my wife who's much better at this than I have, I've been able to kind of get a hold of self-control in regards to food. See, see, the vomit I was experiencing was a lack of focus. Who can function all day on Mountain Dew and Doritos? Not this guy. Um, the vomit I experienced was lack of focus, no energy, and unfortunately headed down a path of all my family towards a lot of heart trouble. Simply because I had no wall. 
I had no wall. I had no restraints. And mainly, I was relying upon my own power. But more on that to come. So what's another area to consider? I've meddled there long enough. Let's move on. Well, anger. Proverbs literally has a ton to say about anger. So Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. You see, understanding sits in contrast to folly, right of ignorance and stupidity. This is what this kind of word means throughout Proverbs. And what separates the man from being understanding or foolish is the ability to restrain himself. So something about restraint and slow to anger signifies great understanding. Well, Proverbs 15, 18 says it this way. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is, here's the language again, slow to anger, quiets contention. As I was studying, I found this fabulous quote by a guy named Kiner. Quarrels depend on people far more than subject matter. That's some good stuff. Quarrels depend on people far more than subject matter. See, we're driving back to the heart, right? This is the best explanation, I think, of that text. You see, an un uncontrollable man tends to pick fights. They tend to kind of stir the pot. They love dissension. And they just can't stop themselves from picking and picking and picking and picking and picking until they get a rise out of someone. But the wise man who is slow to anger, also we could say patient, lets good sense prevail. Through calm dialogue, not heated controversy, in the end, allows the wrongdoing to actually cease. Because the text says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who's slow to anger quiets contention. Meaning that maybe the other person will say, maybe there's value to what you're saying. Because you're exhibiting restraint. Well, Proverbs 16.32 is just, just brilliant. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Here's a city imagery again. But the common language between all these texts is slow to anger. Restraint. Slow to anger is a characteristic of an individual who has understanding, who calmly argues and rarely allows arguments to get out of hand, and lastly, is better than the mighty. Slow to anger is such a feat. It is such an accomplishment that one who shows restraint in his anger is mighty. It's actually a great sign of power. A great sign of power is actually restraint. And oh, is our Savior the greatest example of restraint. No wonder Colossians 2.3 says that he is the embodiment of wisdom. I mean, the Beatitudes call for meekness, right? Strength under control. Well, 
I could meddle for a while there, but I think you get the point. Slow to anger is a characteristic of a man or a woman who is mighty. How do we cultivate self-control? Because up to this point, you're probably thinking, I'm a lost cause. <laughs> I'm done. Just fold it up and I'm out of here, right? Well, there are many struggles for us as Americans in regards to self-control, isn't there? Our society is set up to satisfy all our desires immediately. Immediate gratification, that's the standard. And we do not have to practice restraint. We want, we get. We want, we get. Who could have imagined years ago that one could pull up to a speaker box, say a number, just a number, and pull around to the window, hand someone a card, and they hand you food? My desire for a chicken sandwich can be satisfied in minutes. I have to offer no restraint to get that desire satisfied. That's the standard of our society. How quickly can we remove the barriers? How quickly can we tear down the walls? How quickly can we tear down the wall that in Proverbs 25, 28 says is necessary to thrive? How quickly can we tear the wall down so you can get your desire satisfied? that it can go unchecked, that it can have its way with you. We're up against some difficulty. Well, how do we cultivate self-control then? If society is going to remove all the barriers for me to satisfy my desires, then what should I do? Well, simply put, get better desires. <laughs> I mean, just get a better desire. You're not going to get rid of them, but get better ones. In Psalms 30, 37, 4. We turn to this a lot, but do we understand what this text is telling us? Delight yourself in the Lord. Everything begins with this thought. Delight yourself. Find your joy. Find your satisfaction. Find everything that you are in the Lord. And then guess what? He'll give you the desires of your heart because guess what? You have a better desire. And he'll grant you that one. Oh my gosh, church, we need to get better desires. Why do we flirt around with insignificant things becoming the incredible hawk? <laughs> that desire pales in comparison to my God who loves me, who wants to change me. But see, that text is so wrongly misused. Delight yourself in the Lord. Get better desires that are driven to push you towards the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Aren't we so good at just memorizing the part that we like? Oh, yeah. I like, the, I like Psalm 37, 4b. That's, that's the scripture that really, really just does it for me. Psalm 34, 37, 4b. I just, I got it committed to memory. It's on my walls. He'll give me the desires of my heart. It's so good. 37, 4B? Like, <laughs> what about A? <laughs> and the Psalms and poetry is always driven that way, right? Lines that feed each other. 
lines that can't be seen without each other. That's how this stuff works. Delight yourself in the Lord. Get a better desire. In the New Testament, I find this really interesting. The word for desire, it's used to convey covetousness, Romans 7, 8. It's also used to convey lust, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. It's also used to uh, convey evil passions, Colossians 3, 5. But in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Jesus used that very word to express how much he desired to eat the Passover meal with the disciples. It's the same word. It seems that desire is not bad, but what you desire is a better question to determine if it's healthy or unhealthy. Jesus himself used the word to say, I desire to eat this Passover meal with you because he certainly knew what it meant. I've wanted this. I've longed for this. I've been wanting to do this meal with you. But yet it also conveys lust in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. What do you desire? And, and if it's not driven to push you to the Lord, I, I don't know if it's healthy. Perhaps. All right, all right. Second, devour God's word. So playing on this idea of honey, there's more more to chew on with this imagery. Psalms 19.10. More to be desired are they, God's word, that's what they is, than gold. Even much fine gold. And guess what? They're sweeter also than honey. And drippings of the honeycomb. And so we saw honey, and I gave you some understanding of its beauty, its value, medicinal qualities. And here it says, God's word God's word is better than honey. If you're going to devour something, devour God's word. That will help us cultivate self-control because his word is good. It's actually better than honey. Psalms 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's taking the good thing that we get to experience and says, it's better. It's so good. You like honey? He's better. You like french fries? He's better. <laughs> you like sweet tea? He's better. He's better. Devour God's word. Lastly, and most importantly, embrace Christ and live by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. I have to read this to you. You're already there, so turn, open, put your phone there, whatever. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and we, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the unhealthy desires, right? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So yeah, there's a conflict of desires. But what is it? But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are, simply put, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, robberies, dissension, division, envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what have we been talking about? Yeah, self-control. Self-control, saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Against such things, there is no law. And then the kicker, 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with passions and desires. Walking by the Spirit all begins with embracing Christ and his work on the cross to crucify our explosive, unhealthy desires. To gain what? An all-consuming desire for God. The cross is the place we kill unhealthy desires. And then leaning into the Spirit daily develops self-control. I mean, it's the fruit of the Spirit, for goodness sakes. Therefore, meaning what? That we have been crucified together with Christ. We have all the means necessary to show restraint. We must do all we can to live a life completely and consistently under the control of the Holy Spirit. Bible reading, prayer, community. And this is interesting because we're not called to work harder, but to live in the Spirit and yield to Him. Perhaps this quote from a profound scholar, a very passionate follower of Christ, can offer some insight. So a guy by the name of John Stott, and talking about Galatians 6, 8, which carries this theme, of living by the Spirit. It actually uses the word sowing to the flesh, sowing to the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, walking by the flesh. This theme carries throughout all of this last chapter. And so here's what he said in talking about sowing to the flesh. This is pretty intense, but I think it's worth it. To sow to the flesh is to pander to it, to cost it, cuddle, and store it instead of crucifying it. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we read pornographic literature. Every time we take a risk which strains our self-control. We are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap. That hurts. But that's, that's good. You see, in our endeavor of self-control, we are not left alone. Christ has crucified our sinful desires on the cross to give us a better desire. Then he gave us the spirit by which we can be self-controlled. Church, may we walk by the spirit this week. Romans 13, 14, as we conclude, but on the Lord Jesus put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the scriptures that are so penetrating, that are so specific, that run to our hearts, that call us to live in ways that reflect your character. And when we do that, people take notice. If we were to be people who practice restraint and have self-control, we would be odd. So, Father, we ask that the gospel would be so real to others this week. 
that we would not sow to the flesh, but rather we would pour our lives into Christ, or we'd walk by the Spirit this week. So empower us to do the things you call us to do. Thank you for Christ and the sacrifice by which we can say yes to self-control. Father, I love you, and I thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.